Chapter 47 Jamie finally realized Horngard was his father. Despite the beard, the wild hair, and what seemed like months of grunge all over his face and arms, there could be little doubt, especially when Barry said things. Not that what Barry was saying made any sense. Although it was tender and spoken with smiles, Barry seemed to be talking gibberish most of the time. Occasionally, Jamie would sneak a long look at the oddball his father had become, tending the fire, or sitting in the entrance of the cave, gazing at the hills. Only gradually did he come to realize that this was some kind of rocky enclosure they were in. Other times, Jamie would come out of his stupor and look around in amazement. Each time he understood what was really going on, it made him shiver with fear, even though he had a fever. Soon he would be delirious again. It was such an effort to concentrate on the reality, Jamie actually preferred his flights of delirium, turning the situation into a fantasy about prehistoric times. It was a thrill and a comfort to settle back into his fantasy and dwell on it. He found he could enrich it with all kinds of details he'd picked up from his conversations with Willie Borsuk. During those brief periods when the fever subsided, Jamie would attempt to organize his thoughts more coherently. He knew he'd been hurt, probably concussed. His head was beating like a drum. The throbbing was made worse by the pall of smoke in the cave. He had bits of something in his mouth that tasted bitter. He'd been covered in a heavy quilt of leaves, now soaked with sweat and urine. Sometimes Barry would be there, sifting through all his plastic bags. His father would offer him things to chew. It tasted like sections of tree bark. In these lucid moments, Jamie remembered slipping and falling hard. He tried to build up an account of what had happened to him, but he could never quite reach a conclusion. Slipping and falling hard would take hold in his thoughts, and then his knowledge would crumble away and he would be gone again. In this way, night blended into day with a random collection of delusions and occasional insights. The biggest insight of them all came when Jamie remembered playing near the village with the axe he'd pinched from Willie Borsuk's lounge. He remembered this as if it was something that had happened years ago, playing a game of ambush, then rushing in for the kill, but somehow falling further and harder than he'd intended to. After that, the horn god came along. Jamie liked that part so much he put himself through it over and over again. In his fantasy he imagined a heat so intense his tribe couldn't go hunting anymore and everyone was starving. Then one of the women might stop chipping flint and hold her hands up, making the others listen. They might hear the footfalls of someone making his way up the hill towards their settlement. Moments later, the horn god's bull head and shoulders would take shape in the shimmering heat and he would break onto the scene to rescue them with his magical horn. Barry was going around dressed as a caveman. Jamie knew this was happening. But every time he thought about it, the knowledge seemed to slip away from him. On another occasion, he saw Anya in the cave. But it must have been Anya's spirit, because long ago she'd turned herself into a rock 
rather than face mutilation by the beast that had been stalking their tribe. At first, Jamie was afraid of his sister when she suddenly materialized, but she was inexplicably kind. She stroked his hair and seemed to enjoy being back with the living. She brought chewing gum to eat from her spirit world. All night long, she sat by the fire talking gibberish with Horn God. Jamie grew up in those days. He would learn how to use arrows with deadly tips and how to run silently and how to butcher deer efficiently. It was because he was such a promising youth that Horn God had chosen him as a helper. It made the other boys angry. They taunted him about his smallness. They said Horn God was untrustworthy and likely to go berserk at any time. They were jealous, of course. One evening, while these thoughts spread through Jamie's mind, like the flames licking the branches of the fire, Barry helped him to sit up. I've made onion soup, he said. These were the first words Jamie had understood in days. What did you say? He could detect a smile under his father's beard. He felt his father's arms lifting him. He felt his father's fingers sweeping a tuft of hair out of his eyes. Night was falling and the crackle of the fire attracted Jamie like never before. Even though the smoke stung his eyes, it was a happy moment. He could smell soup bubbling in a tin pot on the flames. You should eat, Barry said. They didn't move. They were so content they didn't want to, except to reach for each other's hands. They remained lost in thought until a rustle in the bushes made them look around. It was the most natural thing for Teresa and Anya to come and join them. Jamie held up one of his father's hands and said, Look who it is. There was no shame or embarrassment in this. It was nearly perfect. In Teresa's mind, it brought about a dread too vast to contemplate. She had to hesitate. She looked back into the darkness, wondering what to do next. Anya immediately understood that her mother might be afraid and took hold of her hand. They walked in together beyond the fire, crouching towards Barry and Jamie deeper in the cave. It was the touching that did it. The tenderness of it and the warmth of the fire. Teresa would know for the rest of her life that she could never have managed without this moment. They all had a similar thought. The urge to hold each other grew so strong it was as if they could merge and become each other. Moments later, they were hugging tightly and swaying as one in the smoke. Postscript My dear Marie, you told me we should keep in touch. I thought I'd write. I don't know if I can send this, but I feel I had to write it. 
My cast came off last week. The arm is better. I hope the handwriting is legible. My headaches haven't gone yet, but I have pills. After everything that's happened, I suppose I'm lucky to be alive. Looking back on it, seeing you in the hospital last month is the only part of the dream I can't forget. Thank you, Marie, for coming so far to see me. I'm sorry you had to see me in such a condition. I would suffer it all over again if I thought it might bring you back. I'll write separately to the children. Whether or not I send this letter, it needs to be addressed to you alone. When I ask myself what I love these days, I still think of us. You're everything that happened to me. It's mad that I'm so appreciative of this now, or that I had no clue how to value it then. I don't expect to bring you back, Marie. I don't even long for it. I know it's a fantasy and therefore impossible. I only think of it in this way because it's a true expression of the sacrifice I would endure if only I could achieve the impossible. After I came out of the coma, I thought I'd lost my identity. It may have been the damage that was done to my brain. If it was, the damage seems permanent. The longer the feeling lasts, the more I'm bound to believe I never had an identity. All I ever had was a name. You were right about one thing, though. I am a coward. Cowardice is the one trait I've known all my life. You asked why I became a solicitor. I told you it was a way of improving my English. I'm sorry to have been so flippant. Although, I have to say, becoming a solicitor was a way of forgetting my German. The better question might have been how I became a solicitor. The answer to that would have been closer to the truth. It was an accident. I met a solicitor one night in a pub. I told him why I was drifting with nothing special to do other than get away from what had happened to us in Vienna. He offered to train me under a contract. It was as easy as that. I moved to Devon. To begin with, I was paid a pittance while I slaved in his offices by day, cramming for the qualifications I needed by night. It seems like a card trick now. Four years later, and hey presto, I was being enrolled as a solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. Even cowards can count their achievements, I guess. Although now, as with everything else, I may come to regret what I've achieved. Once again, I'm a stranger in this land, and maybe Brexit will cause it all to be snatched away from me. Then I'll be where I started, another immigrant just drifting through. For the time being, though, the English are content to let me loose in their courts, in their police stations, in their prisons, always to advise the impoverished, the financially, the mentally, and the educationally impoverished, the desperate ones who are damaged enough to stray into categories of criminality, or the careerists in crime, because that is what occurs most easily to the impoverished. Not everyone is impoverished, of course. Occasionally, I've had the mixed fortune to act for someone who hasn't committed any crime at all. Forgive me. You can probably hear me making a fuss about myself again. This is something I used to do so skillfully. I feel I'm even better at it now. Trumpeting my reservations about being a criminal defense solicitor has become as much a part of me as the smell of fish is part of the fisherman. If I drift in this direction, in this letter to you, 
It's because I wanted to tell you what happened after you left. This seems vital to me, although I'm not sure why. I'm unsure of a lot of things, Marie. After you went back to Vienna, I realized that if I needed to ask who I am, I'd probably never know. Although I'm glad of it now, this newfound uncertainty is also why I was persuaded so easily to do something I shouldn't have done. Not long after you left, I went back to my flat. I started working as soon as I could. I didn't have to, but there was nothing else to do. One night that week, I was called to the police station. A man had been arrested for murder. It's not often I'm called to advise someone arrested for murder. I can only hope it doesn't happen too often either, that the person arrested could so easily have been convicted of it, whether he did it or not. He was a Lithuanian in his sixties. He had a mustache like a Prussian general. He behaved like a general. Since around 2005, he'd been living on a remote part of the moorland in my area. He wasn't the usual kind of suspect. I heard afterwards that he's an authority on Paleolithic migrations. I was with him for no more than an hour. Despite the brevity of it, you can imagine how the seriousness of the situation matched the intensity of our encounter. The police were sure he'd murdered a boy who'd gone missing a few days before. It was breaking news. It was on the television. Some reporters speculated that my client's motives were sexual. As there was no body, this was the most obvious motive to speculate about. Where speculation is concerned, the most obvious is all that counts. I was as convinced as the police were that my client was a murderer. Certainly there was enough evidence, but that only goes to show how evidence can be scattered like leaves to make any pattern at all. He was a social outcast, an older man living on his own. He'd been imprisoned for kidnapping in Lithuania. He'd befriended the boy not long before the boy went missing. He had a collection of ancient weapons anyone would have been fascinated by. A bloodied t-shirt belonging to the boy had been found by the police. Nearby, they found an axe from the man's collection with the boy's blood on it. Most obvious of all, the boy's mobile phone was found in the man's home. A single call had been made to his mother, and this had happened after the boy had disappeared. I believe my client had tried to call the boy's mother, but lost his nerve and hung up before anything could be said. I tried to get him to tell me what he'd done, but he refused to speak about it. He was terrible. He would have refused to speak to a jury as well, and he would have been convicted if it hadn't been for what happened next. What I can't explain is that he seemed to know so much about me. It may be easy these days to guess at the sort of life I've lived just by looking at me, but I felt this man had somehow seen into me. It was unnerving, as was the fact that he'd asked for me personally. I'd never met him. I didn't have any connection with him, yet he wanted me to be his lawyer. When we met, it was as if he knew that he could make a demand of me that no other lawyer would have dreamed of doing. He asked me to call the boy's mother for him. He wanted me to tell her where her son was. I was to do this without mentioning it to anyone, including the police. I thought he must be some kind of sadist. 
I left the police station believing he wanted the thrill of causing the boy's mother the ultimate distress. I was repulsed but bewildered. I couldn't stop thinking about what he'd asked me to do. The trouble was, everything he'd said to me had to remain confidential. All I could do was explain to the police that I'd been professionally compromised. At the time, I really did feel compromised and wondered if I should breach client confidentiality. I was incredibly close to doing this. In the end, I left the station and let them get on with the business of interrogating him. I told myself that the boy must be dead, but I couldn't stop hearing the Lithuanian's voice. He'd said things to me about the way I am in my own life that troubles me even now. I went back to my flat. I went to bed. I couldn't sleep. The question I couldn't get out of my head was, how did he know I would so desperately want to believe his story and call the boy's mother? It was reported in the news that the boy had been playing in a disused quarry. He'd fallen and blacked out. He had injuries to his head. He was fortunate enough to have been rescued by his father. Nobody had heard from his father in months. The man had been a top banker who'd suffered a nervous breakdown. He'd escaped from an institution and was living rough on the moor, trying to be self-sufficient. My Lithuanian client told me all of this. Of course, when he told me he'd come across the boy's father on his walks, I didn't believe him. He said that they'd talked about eating nuts and berries and hunting game and how to make fires using sticks. He said he'd helped the father take care of his son by providing food. It was only hours later, as I lay in bed, that I knew I had to believe him. It turned out that he had problems, not only physically, but mentally. He'd lost touch with his only relatives in Lithuania, a daughter and a grandson. This had affected him profoundly. In his loneliness, which was bleak, he was living too close to a dream he had about what love ought to be. What the newspapers said was that the boy's mother had driven up to the moor with her daughter one night. They explained that the daughter had known where to go. She'd been able to make contact with her father, but was keeping it a secret. That's partly true. The other part is that I called anonymously. I bought a cheap phone from the supermarket. My hands trembled so much I could hardly dial the number. It was crazy for me to contact the person described as the victim, not only by the police, but by anyone who'd followed the story. To my surprise, the daughter answered. I told her I needed to speak to her mother. Without asking why, she passed the phone on. Her mother didn't believe me. She raised her voice. I was about to shrink away, believing I'd made a horrible mistake, when I heard the girl in the background saying she knew where her brother was too, but hadn't been able to bring herself to say anything. They went to the cave together. The boy's father was there with him. It's exactly as the Lithuanian had pictured it. He'd dared to imagine what love might be if only we could strip away everything else. All he'd wanted for the boy's family was a perfect tableau of the past, alive in the present. And like everything else, my dear, the moment was soon forgotten. 
Nobody talks about it anymore. Within hours of the boy's discovery, the authorities will have intervened to pull his family apart again. The police, the social services, medical professionals, they'll all have been assigned to this remorseless task because in a civilized country, that's the way human relations need to be managed. What I mean by this, Marie, is that there was a tableau, a memory of love, that could so easily be imagined 